We're going to be in um, Isaiah 41 today, but I'm actually going to start with a verse in chapter 42. Have you guys ever run into a paradox? A paradox. What is a paradox? It's something that doesn't make sense because it seems to disprove itself, or it has two qualities that both seem to be true. Let me give you some of my favorites as examples if you're not familiar with what a paradox is. One of my favorites there are no absolutes. Another one, you should never say never. Socrates said this, all I know is that I know nothing. <laughs> and this is, this is also one of my favorites. Did you guys ever play Opposite Day in grade school? Anybody? I was like the only weird one? What? Okay. Yeah, somebody says yeah. If it's opposite day, wouldn't you tell people that it's normal day? But then if it's normal day, wouldn't it be normal? Ever think about that? Maybe that's just my grade school sense of humor kicking in. Paradoxes are funny. They're sometimes frustrating. Uh, They're sometimes convicting. They're sometimes really confusing. Uh, This morning and for the next few weeks, our text that we're going to be going through in Isaiah presents us with a seeming paradox. You see, last week we began a section that contains what are popularly, popularly, that's a hard word to say, called the four servant songs. Everybody say servant songs. The first is in Isaiah 42 that we're going to look at today, which begins with verse 1 there, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And the other three are in chapters 49, 50, and 53, and we'll get to all those. Now in each of these, servant songs. We get to know who this servant of God is in great detail, but with just the name servant, we're left unsure as to who it is. Now, being New Testament Christians, we can grasp really quickly that it's most likely speaking of Jesus Christ, but that is the paradox, is that sometimes the word servant is not used for Jesus, not used for the Messiah they were looking forward to. For example, here it is used in the third person, behold my servant, I have put my spirit on him. But elsewhere, it's used not in a direct pronoun for one person. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant. That's not speaking of the Messiah. That's speaking of the people of Israel. And so today, what I want to do is I want to look at the paradox that's at play because this will set the foundation for the rest of the text that we're going through. And the foundation is this. You guys can write this down. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide there. The identity paradox of the servant of God. The identity paradox of the servant of God. The reality is is that there are multiple statements of the servant, and we're going to have to look at all of them. Years ago, when I was an IT manager in Portland, I had a big account that I was sitting down with their engineer and their um, software developer, And so um, one of the guys who I got to know really well, he was uh, a cultural Jew. He didn't really have religious faith, but he practiced all the Jewish traditions. And uh, I took him out to lunch at a Chinese restaurant. So I know somewhere in there, there's like a politically incorrect joke, right? A Protestant and a Jew walk into a Chinese restaurant, right? Isn't that how that starts? Um, But the reality was, was that he was interested in what I had to say. And so over the course of the meal, I took uh, my Bible and I showed him in the Old Testament all the things that spoke of Jesus as the Messiah of his people and mine. 
He paused me at a point when I got to Isaiah 53 and I started to walk him through what's called the suffering servant, that he was crucified for us. By his wounds, we were healed. And he said, well, here's your problem. I see everything that you're saying and I understand it and I get it, but here's your problem. That suffering servant isn't talking about the Messiah. It's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about Israel. And he pointed me to the numerous places where it said, Israel, my servant. And I went, well, this is weird. And so I looked at it and I started to break it down. And, and over the course of time after that meeting, I started to understand that there is a massive paradox here. And we're going to see three different identities that will confuse us just as they confused him if we're not careful. We're going to see God's chosen people, Israel. We're going to see God's Davidic ruler, Jesus. And we're going to see God's redeemed people, the church. Now, I'll break all this down for you, so if I've already lost you, don't worry, you'll catch up. But we've got God's chosen people, God's Davidic ruler, and God's redeemed people. So let's first get our bearings as to where we are in Scripture. We moved into the second uh, big portion of Isaiah here. We left the woes. Everybody say woe for me. Woe, right? And we're glad to get out of there. I'm glad to get out of there. And we've now moved into the hope. Everybody say hope for me. That's a better word, isn't it? I like that word. This quick switch that happened, though, between chapter 39 and chapter 40 leaves us with a bit of whiplash. As David did last week as he taught us, he did such a great job of giving us comfort in the midst of trials, speaking of the comfort that the uh, people of Judah would have. One of the things, though, that we have to see in the midst of this whiplash is that there is a massive difference between chapter 39 and chapter 40. Turn with me really quickly to 39 and take a look with me at the very end there, verses 5 through 7. In the midst of the story of Hezekiah, we saw that at the end of his life, he was basically told, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. This is verse 5. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now, the reality is, is he was told right there that the, the people of Judah were going to be exiled, which means they were going to be taken as slaves into the land of Babylon. Now, what we don't see in our Bibles is that between chapter 39 and chapter 40, almost 150 years passes. Now, you say, wait a minute, hold on, how is that possible? 150 years? Isaiah was that old? Now, here's the reality, and this, this throws a bunch of people for a loop, and if you get really crazy about this, feel free to come back and talk to me. Most likely, what is happening here is one of two options. First is, is the possibility that Isaiah is still alive before the exile, and he's speaking out into the future a prophetic word that is for the people of that day returning from exile. The second option is that Isaiah 8 tells us that he sealed up his prophecies and he gave them to his disciples. And his disciples opened them up after the exile and went, he's right. Everything he said was true. And they, by the illumination and inspiration of God, continued his prophetic writings all the way through chapter 66, still long before Jesus ever came. And so we can look at it in either way and not lose faith or not be concerned because we realize that God was doing the work. He was speaking prophecy to his people, and we have the truth in front of us. So I needed to address that because in chapter 40, everything that we read is going to be from the perspective of someone who's come back from the exile and is looking back over the last 150 years. You get me? Yeah? Okay. So either way, we're good. Now, all of this written from that perspective after exile starts to give us an idea of what chapter 40 is about. And I'm going to just hit a couple points really quick. Verses 1 and 2, look there. 
in chapter 40. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is good news. It speaks to the iniquity of the Jews having been forgiven. That they were brought back from exile because, in a sense, this generation who was rebellious had passed and a new generation had come. And then he continues on to speak of this amazing comfort, speaking of the kingdom of God that would come. Take a look at verse 9 of chapter 40. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. What is the word we use in the New Testament for good news? Gospel. Not only is the gospel the forgiveness of our sins, the gospel is also the kingdom being established. He says, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is good news. Because the gospel... The good news of Jesus Christ is not only is our sin forgiven, not only has he redeemed us, but he has established himself in that act as the king over his kingdom, ruling and reigning over his people and helping us to walk in his image. But Judah had a little bit of a hissy fit. Judah started to get frustrated because if that were true, if God were good, why is all this bad happening? It's a common question. It's a question I deal with as a pastor all the time. If God were good, why are we in the midst of exile? In chapter 40, verse 27, move all the way forward to that, verse 27, God asks them, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? And this is what they say to God. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. The words here in the Hebrew basically say this. God has denied me justice. They're saying to a just God, you've denied me justice because I've gone through what I've gone through. And so God's answer as he finishes off the chapter is, no, guys, if you believe that I'm the creator, if you believe that I'm a good God, trust me because my plan is not finished. You see, we have this unfortunate incapacity to see eternally, don't we? We can only ever see what's right in front of our faces. God, why is this happening right now? Why is the 60 years, 70 years, 80 years of my life so hard? If you were a good God, why wouldn't it be easier? And he says to all of us, guys, read my plan. Read this book and understand that I am good and that my plan of redemption is rolling out. And that's what he finishes with when he says this amazing statement at the end that is a life verse to claim, Isaiah 40, verse 30. Many of you in here today that even have physical ailments, this is a verse to claim, maybe not for right now, but for eternity future. He says, even youths shall grow faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord, that word wait means trust, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And he's saying to them, guys, even if even if life has failed in your midst because of your own disobedience, even if it seems like I have failed, even if it seems like you have failed, keep going. My plan will come to pass. And so we move into chapter 41 with great hope, saying, what is this plan, Lord? What is this plan that you have? And he begins chapter 41 
with this. He begins with the servant as God's chosen people. This will be all of chapter 41. The servant as God's chosen people. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. We don't quite get this fully if we don't understand the historical context. What's going on here is at the end of the exile, God was stirring up a group called the Medes or the Persians, what we know today as Iran. And he was stirring them up with a king known, known as Cyrus that we'll get to in a later chapter. And Cyrus was going to lead his armies in to conquer the Babylonians and put to end the fullness of the exile and allow the Jews to come fully back into their land. He's basically saying, my plan is to bring you back from exile. And I believe that he begins here because he will use this as a starting point. He will speak later about this king and his kingdom. And he will say, this is my chosen leader to accomplish my purposes. And he says, who has done this? Look at what he says there. I, the Lord, the first and with the last. Who's that speaking of? Who's the first and the last? Jesus. The New Testament calls it the Alpha and the Omega, the first uh, letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. We know that God himself is speaking here, and we know that Jesus says it elsewhere. Revelation 1, 5 through 8 says this. Now notice This is New Testament. This is Revelation. And notice what is expanded here as the gospel. Not just just forgiveness of sins. That's part of it. That's a huge part of it. But the good news extends beyond that to the fact that he has made us a kingdom and that kingdom is advancing and will come to fullness. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Amen? Amen? That's the forgiveness of sins. And made us a kingdom. That's past tense. It's already begun. Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. The same God who was going to accomplish this work with his servant Cyrus and the people of Persia will also continue his work and accomplish it with his chosen servant, Jesus Christ, and the people that are in him. And that's what we'll see today, that God keeps his promises and is faithful to his people. And he asks them to be different than the nations because he's faithful to them. And so he goes on here. Take a look at verse 5. He's going to start breaking down the difference between his servant, the Jews, the chosen people, in comparison with the people of the world. Verse 5, he says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. Oh, that sounds good, right? People helping their neighbors and saying, Be strong. What are they helping them in? Idolatry. 
It says, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Do you catch the Lord's sarcasm here? You need nails to keep your God immovable. I am immovable, is what he's saying. He says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Israel was supposed to take their strength from the Lord because of their relationship with him and his covenant with them. And they were to be a light to the nations. They were to be the one that spoke of the goodness and the innate righteousness of God their king and not be like the idolatrous nations looking for comfort and security within things that are not of the Lord. They were going to be his people. Verse 11, look what it says. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be nothing and shall perish. You can look at the history of Israel even in the last uh, 70 years and see that this is true, that the Lord protects his people. He says, you shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. And isn't that a beautiful picture? I sit there and think about all the times that I am sad or depressed or worried or fearful. And the Lord is big enough that he can grasp my hand. That's a pretty big God to grasp a six foot ten guy's hand. But he's a lot bigger than that. He holds the whole world in his palm. He watches over us and cares for us. He has us by the hand. You see, God was going to help them be victorious over the pagan nations. He would be their strength. And why was this his plan? Well, we go on and we see here that he starts to tell them that they're acting not in accordance with who he is, but on their own. Look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. In other words, nothing will stop you. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Why? How could they do this? Because of God's innate character. God is righteous and just, desiring to set what is wrong to right. Not based on what we believe is fair, but on what is actually fair, just, and true. So here, the author of Isaiah, Isaiah himself or his disciples, doesn't matter. He lays out for us that righteousness of God. Look at verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. 
I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Notice the restoration happening. I will put in the wilderness the cedar. Remember, by wilderness, he means desert. The acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Must have been thinking about Bend, Oregon there, right? You look at God's creation. You look at his beauty and you say, he's the one that restores. Because of God's innate character, he was going to help his people. That's the God we serve. Not because of merit. Not because we're good enough, smart enough, or gosh darn it, people like us. But because of his character. He helps the helpless. And you see, God's innate character is made up of this idea of righteousness and justice and holiness that we've been covering all throughout Isaiah. In the Hebrew, righteousness and justice, tzedakah mishpat. Remember what it means here. Let's go through this again. I'm going to give you a little bit more detail. In the past, I've been saying righteousness is what? Right relationship. And justice is the activity that brings it about. Let me break this down a little bit more for you today so you understand the outcome of righteousness and justice. What righteousness means, okay, remember it starts with God's character, that he's innately righteous, and his action, that he acts in righteousness, and then he passes that on to us, his people. And so righteousness for us means community life with all relationships. God, others, self and creation, well-ordered, full of shalom, all things flourishing as God designed them to be. When you guys have that hurt that happens in church, when you see brokenness that happens in church, and you have a visceral reaction that says, this is not what God's kingdom is, you are absolutely right. Hans, you're idealist. That can never happen. We're broken sinners. Yep. But this is what we strive for. In every sense of the word. Because the righteous person that has been made righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus and the giving of his Holy Spirit, the righteous person is one who contributes to such life. We'll have these slides up on the internet when we post the teaching. So if you can't get this all, it's all right. You can catch it later. How about doing justice? That was righteousness. Here's what doing justice is. Doing justice is inconveniencing myself. Let's pause there for a second. Hello, America. We have to first admit that we're Americans. And that this is contrary to everything our culture is based on. It's okay. Confess it. You'll feel better. Okay? Doing justice is inconveniencing myself for the sake of the other. And especially the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. Injustice is keeping my stuff for my own comfort at the expense of the other. Now, guys, this is talking about IJM and Compassion International and serving the churches in Haiti and in Burkina Faso and in Indonesia. But it's also talking about the basics of your everyday life. It's even talking about what happens during our gathering on a Sunday. Things as simple as giving of an offering giving your time and volunteering. We can do justice in even the simple things. Here in this church, 
and beyond into the world. Doing justice is protecting the vulnerable. Doing injustice is abusing the vulnerable. I think many of us, we don't fall into those two categories quite often. We fall into the third one, ignoring justice, which is not proactively acting to protect the vulnerable. This is the activity of righteousness and justice in the people of God and in his kingdom. And so God's plan was to graciously choose Israel, not by their own merit, but by grace. That they might be witnesses to the world, living out God's character toward the world. But unfortunately, they didn't take that seriously and they jumped in line with the rest of the world and became idolatrous. They still identified themselves as God's people. Yeah, I'm chosen. They still went to their, their places of worship and did all the religious things as we saw at the beginning of Isaiah. But they stopped short of reflecting the character of God. And so at this point, it is almost as if God steps into the courtroom and says to them, let's sit down and judge this situation. Those idols, they bring you nothing. They can't help you. I've brought you a plan. What are you doing about it? And so take a look here at what he does in setting forth his case, starting in verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are. He's asking this of the idols. That we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be satisfied and terrified. Notice his sarcasm. Behold, you are nothing, he says to the idols, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Look at what he says, I do. God says, I stirred up one from the north. This is speaking of Persia. And he has come from the rising of the sun, the east. And he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. He's speaking of Isaiah here. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer? Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. See, the people who had been chosen in order to show his character to the world had pushed it aside. And he's saying, guys, you became idolatrous. You couldn't fulfill what I needed you to do. But I want you to notice the poetic genius of Isaiah. He says, when I looked for people to reflect me, there was no one. Now, in my own imagination, I close my eyes and I see the sun-cracked Judean desert. No one around. And I see the wind blowing dust storms across the way and I look around and I see what God has claimed, that there is indeed no one. No one to reflect the character of God. And yet, the wind blows just enough to help us start to see through the sand. And in the distance, there's someone coming towards us. Someone who's a single person who will fulfill what Israel could not. And so God speaks this in the next section. He begins with, Behold, look, see, my servant whom I uphold. 
And this begins the next section. Not only what we saw earlier, the servant as God's chosen people, but now we see the individual, the servant as God's Davidic ruler, meaning he's in the line of David. He's a king to come. The servant as God's Davidic ruler. Israel failed in their position of God's servant. They failed in their position as his people chosen and sent to the nations to show who the Lord God is and was. And so he's going to begin a new work. He'll say in chapter 43, Behold, I begin a new work. I am doing something new. And that new thing would be this servant. The servant that is known as the Messiah or the Christ who would come and do what Israel could not do. He would rightly represent the Lord the Creator God. Now, would He do it with a conquering army in great procession and pomp and circumstance and fanfare? No, He would do it simply and quietly and almost in the background. Let's take a look here and see the Lord's chosen servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Speaking of a quiet spirit. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, he will give up on no one. He will faithfully bring forth, what's that word there? Justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he is established. What's that word there? justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. This Messiah figure will establish a kingdom in which justice will reign. Hans, how did you get kingdom out of this? Well, we have to remember our definition of kingdom. A kingdom is a king ruling over a people. Say that with me. A king ruling over a people. That's all a kingdom is. And the job of a king in ruling a people is through the administration of his law to bring about just consequences or justice. And this harkens all the way back to the picture of the king reigning from the mountain of God at the beginning of Isaiah. We saw this in Isaiah 2.3. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. We'll see what his ways are again in a second. We'll be reminded of those. For out of Zion shall go the, what's that word there? Law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So let's look at this section here. It speaks of justice three times, and it speaks of law once. He will bring justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He won't stop until he has established justice. And the whole world will wait for his law. And so many theologians term him the Davidic ruler, the Messiah, the Christ, the King. And his job was to come and free his people and then establish his kingdom. Now this next statement, verses 5 through 9, will speak of declaring his kingdom to come and that this servant will, by his rule, bring about what he's promised. Look at 42.5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it 
and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Remember that whenever you see Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, it means Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is a new work that God is doing through his Messiah. Just as Cyrus would come and free the people physically, this Messiah will come and free the people spiritually. And he will establish a kingdom in his name. And in Matthew chapter 12, write this down. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. We won't read it for the sake of time. But this section of scripture is quoted and it says, this is speaking of Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth. The man who came and died and rose again for the sins of his people. This servant, this Messiah is the one that you can know personally. That you can confess as Savior and King. That you can submit to in his kingdom. The disastrous, rebellious of our first parents won't stop the work of the Creator God. Nor will the failure of those he called in grace who refuse to reflect him in the world. God is going to do a new work, and he's already done it in our time, having sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. But in Isaiah's day, this was speaking of the work to come. And this new plan could not be overturned. Take a look at verses 13, or excuse me, uh, verses 10 onward. It says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Cater inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty, against his foes. He says, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Who is he at war with here? He goes out like a man of war. He says he's going to put them utterly ashamed. What we see here is part of what we've been talking about theologically throughout all of Isaiah, that God was removed from the throne and an enemy force took over his creation. By our submission, not to God, but to ourselves, 
We freely handed over creation to the enemy, the adversary, who's also known as Satan. Hasatan in Hebrew means the adversary, the accuser. We handed it over to him, and he began to build idolatry, worship of false gods that behind them have demonic realm. And so all of the work of redemption is not just, it is, but it's not just for the purpose of forgiving us of our sins. His work is to conquer the enemy and bring back creation into his reign, to be placed back on the throne as he deserves. And so this is why Paul says in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God was trying to tell Israel who would be coming to represent him This man of war that would yet at the same time have a quiet spirit and do things in not a conquering king way of the world, but a conquering king way of heaven. And the Jews didn't get this. So God continues in verse 18 and he says, guys, you got to figure this out. Verse 18, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. What is he telling them to see? Remember he started the chapter with behold my servant. Who is blind but my servant? Er? Which servant is he talking about here? Israel or the Messiah? Israel. You see how it's a paradox and you got to be careful here? You got to make sure who he's talking to. Who is blind but my servant Israel or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law. What does he mean there? He was going to show his law of righteousness and justice through the way his people acted and the way that they lived life. He was going to make it glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue. Spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will come and attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. You see, the Jews were practicing the right things religiously to show that they were religious. They rejoiced and boasted in their national identity. They showed and spoke that they were the chosen ones, but they missed the point that the whole reason God chose them, rescued them, and saved them was to be faithful to his covenant promise and to be a witness to the nations. They saw it, but they failed to observe. They had open ears, but they failed to hear. They were to take the kingdom of God to the nations, but they didn't. It pleased God to magnify his law for his righteousness' sake, but the people sinned. And while they may have kept parts of the ceremonial Mosaic law to say that they were Jews, they missed completely showing the character of God by not carrying out righteousness and justice in their own lives and communities. Guys, remember that when we talk about the law, 
we have to talk about that which exists within the reign of the Lord. Those of us who are good Protestants who know Reformed theology, we say, the law is bad. We don't live under the law anymore. That, that law that Paul talked about, he said, we live under grace, not law. Guys, our English is so terrible. <laughs> Throughout Romans, he speaks of, you don't live under the Mosaic ceremonial law any longer. Why? Because we don't have to give sacrifices. We don't have to be circumcised. But he also talks about how we still live under the law. Hans, I'm so confused this morning. Yeah, most of us as Christians actually are. Because remember that the law of God still exists as it did with Abraham and it exists today. And all it is when I say the law of God is that which exists when the reign of the Lord is present in his people. Remember, guys. Remember that the way of God that Abraham obeyed before the law of Moses was ever given is the same law we are to keep. What am I talking about here? Let's take a look up here. Remember this in Genesis 18, 19. Remember, Genesis is before the Mosaic law. Speaking of Abraham, God says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? Everybody say it out loud. Righteousness and justice. Sedekava mishpat. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then a few chapters later, speaking to his son Isaac, this is what he says about Abraham. Notice the address, Genesis. And Genesis is before the Mosaic law was ever given. And in your offspring, Isaac, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham, everybody read this with me out loud, obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. What are you talking about? Are you forgetting, God, the whole, like, uh, concubine thing? God never asks us to be perfect, folks. He asks us to be obedient. And to be obedient is not to be perfect. It is to live within the law. Many of you in here, I've said this before, you're obedient drivers, and yet you have tickets. Why? Because when you run a red light, you get stopped by the authority, and he says, you shouldn't have done that just like our conscience convicts us. What do you do? You then get impounded and kicked out of the United States. You're no longer a citizen in the kingdom. No, he says, don't do that again. And you go, okay, officer. And then you change your habits and your thinking and your values to go, yeah, I did break the law. I shouldn't do that again. It's called conviction, confession, and repentance. It doesn't kick you out of the kingdom. It's how you, you walk in the kingdom in obedience. Well, Hans, that's all Old Testament. You're still, you're still lying to us here. Look at 1 John 3, 4, and notice what it says sin is. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices what? Lawlessness, because sin is what? Living without the law. Everybody look at Titus chapter 2 and read it with me. I can already see some of you shutting down. You're going, this doesn't compute with what I've been taught before. We don't live under law. You don't live under the law of Moses. You still live under the law of the king of the kingdom. Look at it. For the grace of God has appeared. Notice that word, guys, grace. Why? Because without merit, without anything earning, God said, you can be in my kingdom. And we all said what? Thank you. It's appeared. In other words, it's existing, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
while we, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, the anointed King, Christ, who gave himself for us to first redeem us from our own sin and from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are what? For? It's not by works we're saved. You are absolutely right. You are not justified nor saved by the works of your life. You are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, not of your own merit, but by his grace. And that's how you get in the kingdom. And then living within the kingdom, what do you do? You follow the king in his reign. To be a Christian is to be one saved by God, redeemed from one's own sin, forgiven, identifying within the kingdom of God, recognizing our imperfection, and yet always growing into the image of the messianic servant by the power of the Holy Spirit, living within his reign of righteousness and justice. That's a Christian. Why is this so important for us to understand? Because of the last view of this servant. Without the messianic servant, guys, we have no chance. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. There is no kingdom. We have no avenue into it. Without his grace, we are nothing. With his grace, we become what? His redeemed people. And so we see in this section the servant as God's redeemed people. Now you can see why I titled this sermon The Identity Paradox of the Servant. I could have called it the Identity Crisis. But God doesn't have a crisis. We do. And so as we read this last section, let's take a look here and see what he's saying to us. To this point, what Isaiah has done is he's walked us through redemptive history. The servant of Israel failed because they were blind to the true nature of God and his desires for them. So God had to send his, his servant, the Davidic ruler. And we now know that to be Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled Israel's duty. Why did he bring 12 apostles? Because he was creating 12 new tribes. Why did he say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he was telling us his law and his rule and reign. He was creating his kingdom and correcting the perversion of what had happened with the people of Israel. And so now he's going to speak to us that not only is he the servant, but he hands that servanthood to his people. Jesus hands to us the fact that he was obedient. He fulfilled the law. Take a look at this up on the screen, Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hmm. Look at what Paul himself, the guy who said we're not under the law, look at what he says here in Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, meaning the Mosaic law, weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What? First one's Mosaic law, second one is the law of the kingdom. Fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's called the law of the spirit and life. Elsewhere in James, it's called the law of liberty. So Jesus was obedient, not just in the day-to-day detail of the Mosaic law, but in everything he fulfilled that, wiping away the requirement of the ceremonial law of the Jews 
And now he gave us his law of righteousness and justice to walk in. And more importantly, he gave us the Holy Spirit that allows us to do it. Because without the Holy Spirit, we'd be just like the Jewish people, not doing it in our own capability. And so, because he fulfilled that role of servant, we're going to see him point out that he hands that servanthood to his people. Let's take a look in Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Guys, so many of you in here, the brokenness in your life comes from one place. Everybody look up at me for a second. The brokenness in your life comes from one place, and that's that you do not believe this verse. You believe an identity that was given to you by an abusive parent, by an abusive boyfriend or girlfriend, by a trauma that's happened in your life, by a misreading of Scripture, by a faulty cult that you used to be part of, by bad theology. Some identity reigns in your life that you are something other than the Lord's. Once you get this, that you are a child of the Most High God, purchased with his blood. And once you acknowledge that to the point where you start defeating the lies and walking in that truth, your life will change. And one of the ways that you walk in that truth is that you walk with the other brothers and sisters that have been welcomed into the family of God as part of the community of faith. And in those safe relationships, because of covenant, we get to grow into who we're supposed to be. And in the midst of brokenness, we can repent and confess and show what it is to walk in the law of righteousness and justice. He says, I've purchased you. I've redeemed you. You're mine. And he goes on with tons of hope. Verse 2, he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and, excuse me, and honored and I love you. Many of us in this room today, we need to understand that God loves us. He loves us so much that sometimes he disciplines us. He loves us so much that sometimes he has compassion on us and walks us through things. All the while, he loves us and he's with us. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life, Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Guys, who's he talking about there? He's talking about you. He's gone out into the Gentile nations to bring his true people, anyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes in his name together. And he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why were you created? Answer that question with the text. Why were you created? For his glory. Not for your own devices, not to live your own life, not to make memories with you and your kids and your family and to make your life your kingdom. Why were you created? For his glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes. That's us. We're just like the Jews who were blind to the character of God. And yet by his Holy Spirit and grace, he has given us eyes to see. Who are deaf yet have ears. That's us. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? 
Let them bring their witness and prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. Now focus in on this, guys. Who's he speaking to? You are my witnesses. He's speaking to all of his redeemed people. Raise your hand if you're one of his redeemed people. You are my witnesses, he says. And my servant, whom I have chosen. What? Wait a minute. Israel was your servant and they failed. True. So Jesus had to come and he had to fix everything in walking in obedience and truth. True. He was your servant. Yep. And yet we're your servant? Yeah, because he's imparted servanthood to us by his spirit. Why are we his servant? That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior, he says. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. Who can turn it back? As the better than Jacob, he established those 12 new elders. As the better than Moses, he gave us the truth of his law on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did everything necessary to show us who God was, and then he went to the cross in the ultimate fulfillment of God's justice and righteousness and grace. Justice was done because someone died for my sin that day, and it wasn't me. God accepted injustice on himself so that justice might be served for you. That's the gospel good news. And he did all of this to draw us to himself so that we might act and live and show a way that proclaims to the people in Salem and Kaiser and the world around us who this creator God is. And it's so desperately needed in this world today. Christianity is not just sprinkling kindness fairy dust everywhere you go, guys. It's having a deep, solid trust and understanding of our risen Lord and Savior and taking his righteousness and justice to the nations. And so we finally see the paradox of the servant. It is both Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and his people that live within his messianic rule who act together as one servant in the unity of the Spirit. And this is not for some distant future. This is for today. We were the people of verse 8 who were blind and deaf, and yet he brought us to understand. We are the people of verse 10 that are his witnesses. The servant is both Christ and those in Christ. And this is what Paul was referring to when he called us the body of Christ. Dear flock, do you see how the Bible is about so much more than your personal and individual salvation? It is about God's kingdom reign, and you and I get to be a part of it by his grace. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. How can the servant be both the Davidic ruler and those he reigns over? Because of the identity paradox of the servant of God. Both the Davidic ruler and the servant of God's collective church can be one and the same and different. Why? Because we are empowered by God's Spirit and share in the common royal task of bringing forth justice. And because we, just like Jesus, are agents of the same ultimate King, the Creator God. Guys, this is what it means to be in Christ. Living the Christian life is to recognize that you were blind, but now you see. You were deaf, but now you hear. You were separated from Jesus, but now you are one with him in Christ. Life was purposeless, but now God himself is giving you a mission to act as part of his new divine, excuse me, divinely assembled body, taking the righteousness and just character of our God to everyone you know. Now we understand what Paul meant when he wrote this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because he saved us, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What is receiving the grace of God in vain? Saying, I receive it with no outcome. That's literally the definition. I'll take it. I'm good. Can I get into heaven? All right, see you later. I'm going to go live my life. That's receiving the grace of God in vain. And it is too often given to people in churches. Yeah, you're saved. Go about your life. Hey, yay. Without a teaching of the true discipleship that is required and the cost that comes along with it. And my hope for this church is that we grasp this. That we grasp the identity paradox of the servant of God. Okay, you say, Hans, you got my attention. How do I fit into this redemptive story? Well, first... Just a couple points here and then we'll be done. First, we must trust God. You must trust God. You must trust that his plan is right and true and confess that he died for our sins, for your sins, and has forgiven you. And we must share our allegiance with him alone as Lord, not anyone or anything else, including ourselves. He alone is Lord in our lives. And when we do this, this is the starting point of a relationship the profession of faith. If you want to make this profession, I beg of you to come back and talk with me in the back after service. During worship, your chance to respond will be to get up out of your seat, to proclaim that you want allegiance to Jesus as Lord only and come back and talk with me in the back so that I can connect you with discipleship and help you understand what it is to walk as a Christian. That's the starting point. Grace freely given, grace freely received. 
No works, no merit needed. And then we begin the process of being conformed to his image. This is called sanctification, where we live out our lives within his kingdom reign, repenting the moment we find that we have wandered from it, knowing that we have not lost our salvation. We have simply erred in following him. We repent and confess and allow him to wash us. What is the law of his kingdom reign, you might ask? We've talked about righteousness and justice. Let me condense it down for you. You can write down these scripture verses as we go. Romans 13, 8. And notice, these are all from the New Testament. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For one who loves another has fulfilled what? Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So many of you think that people love you when they constantly are wronging you. Don't set your definition of love based on the world or what you hope is love. Set your idea of love on the truth of the Bible, that those who have hurt you will come to you and repent if you come to them and say, you've hurt me. That's love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of what? The law. law. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill what? Of Christ. Are we under law, guys? Absolutely. We're not under the law of circumcision. We're not under the law of going and sacrificing a cow in order to make up for our sins. We're not under the law of the ceremonial laws that say don't fill your field with two types of seed because that's mixture and I want you to be a picture of non-mixture for the world. Guys, I got different types of clothing on. Some's cotton and some's poly blend, whatever, okay? We are not under the ceremonial law any longer. What are we under? The law of? And it can be summed up in one word, which is? You guys got it. James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Remember what justice is? It's giving of yourself for the sake of the other. It's inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the other. Fulfill the law by loving one another. This is not how you enter the kingdom. This is what you do once enrolled as a citizen. Now, how do we practically do this? We've already said it. Simply, it's, it's this. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life, his opinions, his schedule, his finances for his friend. Love is to live based on the rule of righteousness and justice, to give of your life, to inconvenience yourself for the sake of the other. Dear flock, precious church, who I love with all my heart, visitors who I may not know, but I know that you're loved because the Lord loves you. Old friends who I haven't seen in a while, I love you. I pray that this word of God will dwell in us richly this morning. Let us love one another as Christ first loved us. You know, it's interesting. The last, really the last like three months have just been killer so much going on uh, in this church. And man, 
One of the things I've found in my very short life is that when a church is growing in the spirit and growing in an understanding of who the Lord is, Satan hates it. Man, the attacks that some of you have been under, whether it be physical health, whether it be uh, anything related to anything going on in the world right now, whether it be, man, just trudging through being faithful to righteousness and justice. I echo what Shane said in just a huge fashion. The Lord is proud of you guys. Because what he did in giving of his son was he said, guys, I know you need me. And now you have me. And now I've given you everything you need to walk in the power of what Jesus did. And so today, I I, I am not, you guys know me. I am about, uh, you know, Pentecostal to Baptist. I'm like sometimes over past Baptist, right? Okay. I'm not a hyper-spiritual guy, but do you realize how the Holy Spirit is moving in this church? The Holy Spirit is moving in a big way. And some of you, it's moving in ways that are encouraging you in the things that you've always done and desired to do. Some of you have dreams to serve the kingdom, and the Lord is saying, go do those. Some of you have a desire to reach given people, and he's saying, go reach them. For others of you in here, you've been walking in a plateau in in your walk for a long time, and the Lord is bringing his faithful and loving conviction to you and saying, there's some tweaks. You're still mine. You're still fully loved, but there's some tweaks. And I'm so thankful for the movement of the Spirit in this church. He's moving in a massive way. And so today I want you to leave here with encouragement, with conviction, with an understanding that we are the kingdom that he's called us to be. And I want you to leave here in love and peace, knowing that you are his citizens. And so we end today, we end today with the blessing that we've done the last few weeks. Remember, just to repeat as we go here, hopefully I can sing on key. Here we go. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Go forth into the world and walk in the peace of the kingdom. Amen.